What's your dream? What's your goal? What's your motivation? What's important to you? What's your passion? What can you do to change the world? This is What's Involved. Conversations with thought leaders and change makers from around the world. Hear stories of hope and inspiration to help motivate people like you to live your life, find your passion, and live your dream. Together, we can all bring positive change to our world. Now, here's your host, David Watts. Once again, it is What's Involved. Uh, a special guest joining me today. Um, I've got to be honest about this, that, and, and you'll understand why during the course of this conversation. This is uh, a guest I wanted to chat to. It's also a guest I didn't want to chat to. It's about a book that he wrote that needed to be written. And it's also a book I didn't want to read. So uh, with that in mind, my special guest today is Norman McFarlane. He is the author of Across the Border, Surviving the Secret War in Angola. Hello, Norman. How are you? Hi, David. I'm good. Thanks. And how are you? I'm okay, thank you. Okay, as I said, you know, this this was a book. It came across my desk, and initially, my my first impression was, oh, it's another war story. Okay, cool, because you know, we've we've all read some of them about uh, some of the, the the elite units in South Africa and about what happened here and there and everywhere. Um, and then I got into the book a little bit, and I realized it's actually not a war story. Um, it's it's kind of, I suppose, I would call it a hero's journey story. And, and it's about uh, what happened to you as Norman, as an individual, um, experiencing this time in your life. So before we dive into it, uh, let's start off at the very beginning. Tell me a little bit about Norman. Well, David, Norman, is, uh, Norman was um, growing up uh, quite a solitary young boy. I, I didn't make friends terribly easily. Um, I prefer to spend my time lost in a book or reading or dreaming about who knows what. So, and I had, uh, I would guess, uh, a rather strange upbringing in the sense that um, I grew up in a very loving family. Uh, we, 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 and family extended beyond just our immediate family. And I was fortunate enough when I was young, to spend a great deal of time in the trans sky. Um, and and that, those experiences were very much a formative part of how I came together as a, a young man before I went in, into the military. Um, I, I have fond memories, uh, and I made the observation in the book that they're great swear that I don't remember, but certainly in terms of my earlier life, I have vivid memories of, of so much that, that transpired in my young life with my family, I'm going fishing with my grandfather and my dad on the Swatkops River in Port Elizabeth, um, where I grew up for the first 13 or 14 years of my life. Um, my very close relationship with my brother after I turned 16, for some reason or other, four years apart, we fought like cat and dog until um, I kind of magically reached the age of 16, and then we became the closest of friends. And I, I had a very close relationship with my mom and dad, both of whom are no longer with me. So, but but my... What informed my thinking a great deal was the times I used to spend in the trans sky at Horbeni, which is the ancestral home of my late uncle by marriage, Donald Woods. And I, I recall as a teenager sitting for hours at his feet, and I do recount this in the book as well, listening to what Donald had to say 
about South Africa and what apartheid was and what it meant to us as a society. And that, in many respects, informed who I was when I went into the military, which did result in a significant degree of conflict, I have to tell you. But I had, I had, a, I had a, a lovely childhood. Um, I had, and I had a loving family, and I had a loving mom and dad until the days that they both passed away. So yeah, that's me. And um, I, yeah, I came out of out of um, school, and I went straight into the military. There was there was no money in our family for university, so it was uh, come out of school, go to the army, and when you're done with that, find a job and get working. Which is amazing because so many of us from that period of time, really, um, we kind of that was just the thing you did. I mean, I didn't come from a family that was that was wealthy either. Um, I came from, I suppose, a, a, a kind of very much middle of the road. We were just getting by. My dad worked for an international company. Um, my mom was a dancing teacher. So I never really grew up in, you know, having these racist kind of uh, uh, things thrust upon me. Because to me, I was a kid. I was growing up, um, you know, and it, it, it never occurred to me. And then suddenly... Uh, it became a reality when uh, you get that little postcard, and, and I'm sure it happened to you as well. Um, but at that stage, even with, with by the time I went into into the army, because I went into service uh, after you, um, it wasn't the done thing, um, you know, to to kind of not go or to be a conscientious objector. It was was starting, but and and particularly for my old fashioned sort of family, they were. Exactly like that, you know. You finished high school now. Um, we're not sending you to varsity. There's no money. Go to the army. Do what you got to do. Come out. Get a job, preferably as um, you know something like a banker or you know something that's acceptable yep. to yep. the family. Uh, yep. And and off you go. And well, let me tell you, um, it's, I've oftentimes heard it uh, referred to as the best two years of your life that you never want to do again. And I think there's there's an element of truth to that, but I don't think it's entirely like that. But you, you start your journey with you now arriving um, at the at, at you know you've now been called up and off you go. Um, where were you called up to? Let's start there, and then how did you get to where you started with your training? Okay, um, I was called up to four field regiments, uh, an artillery regiment in Potchefstroom uh, at the time, one of the only two. Um, full-time artillery regiments. Everything else was, was citizen force at the time. And um, I went there from Durban, which is where my parents had moved to and where I'd finished my schooling. So, yes, that little card arrived in the mail and said that uh, you need to report to Durban Station at this time on this day, which was the 5th of January, 1975. And uh, we're going to take you away from your loving parents and your loving home and the world that you understand, and we're going to thrust you into something that is completely alien and disconcerting um, and, uh, in some respects, very difficult to deal with. So that's how the journey started. I have to say, um, the, the, the opening line in the book, in the prologue, was I do make the observation that I had these great big blanks that I didn't recall at all, but the opening line that I attribute to Benny Harvenkar, one of my, my comrades up there, was absolutely word perfect because I will never, ever forget the statement he made that night when we were sitting in the compartment on the way 
up to Bochostrum. Um, and it just, when I started to write the book, it just seemed to be the right place to start the story. Um, and that's why the, the, the narrative unfolded the way it did. I, I didn't, I didn't start writing the book with a plan in my head of where the narrative was going to go to. It, it literally grew organically once I'd started to write. Now, that statement made by, by Benny Harvenkar, I mean, as I read it, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's the way to describe it because that's what happened. And, and I think it's a very South African term. It, it, basically, in, in today's nice, polite language, um, he said that you were going to be doing a lot of throwing up. Precisely. Um, and and in, in our slang at the time, I don't know if it's still very much in vogue or not, but it was called coaching, which I think was, right. which I think yep. was a very apt word as well. Um, and that, that, that is absolutely true. And, mm. and it's, it's true as well that you get thrown into this environment. Yeah, I was just, just turned 18. No idea. Get dropped off in the dark at a place, told you're not going to see your mom and dad again for at least three months or your family, your friends. And uh, we're taking you somewhere, but we're not going to tell you exactly where we're taking you. Mm-hmm. And then uh, getting on to the, the samples, that's the one thing that I do remember. Um, and they, they had samples 50s and samples 100s there. And, you know, they would tell you to scream and shout at you, get on, get on. And then you get on and you think, okay, well, it's full now. And then they would, they would take off and hit the brakes and you'd all go sliding around. And they'd mm-hmm. repeat this a couple of times until there was yep. way more than 100 or 50 of you in the vehicle. And then off we went. So you're now there um, and as part of it, and, and people may not know this, which I still, I'm trying to wrap my head around the fact that there are people that have no concept of, of this kind of military service or anything. But, you know, you, you, you set off, they, they take you somewhere, people are screaming at you the whole time and you have no idea why they're screaming at you and, and what the problem is and what those little markings on them uh, mean on their sleeves and stuff like that. How was that yeah. beginning experience for you? Well, it was bewildering and it was an assault on the senses. And, you know, the, right from the very beginning in, in, when we arrived at the station, and it, it very quickly sunk in that the order, of, uh, the order of the day in the military is that you get shouted at constantly. Um, and you get told that you're useless and that you're, and I don't want to use the expletives that are so commonly used or were so commonly used in the military in those days, because um, it's it literally an assault on the senses. It's bewildering, it's disconcerting, and it's troubling. And you're with a group of people you've never met before. You don't know them from a bar of soap in most instances. So you can't really reach out to anybody for any kind of support um, or encouragement because it just ain't there. So it's just a complete assault on the senses. And that's the way I experienced it initially. And, and I think that's, that's part, of, part of what they did uh, at that time was, was, was that total onslaught of, on the senses and, and breaking you down. I mean, I'll, I'll, another thing that stuck in my mind is um, when, when we had to um, sort of fall in for our first official parade and the camp commandant uh, came up there, and uh, his opening statement is, um, as of now, the army is your mother and I am your father, but we're not married, so you know what makes, that makes you lot. Um, and and that was kind of the theme of it. I quickly got to dislike 
uh, people with uh, those little PTI badges, which was the PT instructors. Um, and then, yeah, we got shoved into, into, in, into barracks, into dormitories. I mean, uh, you know, there was like 50 or 60 of us. Um, uh, the, the conditions were appalling. I'd never had to do the kind of stuff I'd had to do in, in my life before. But then, and, and those, and that's how long was your basic training in those days? Was it, did well, it, it was six weeks months? in those, those days? It's six weeks. Okay, six um, weeks. Yeah. Um, so you now start to learn about throwing up and about being <laughs> broken down. And, and, and again, you know, today if somebody had to say to me, see that tree over there, go and get me a leaf, I'd go, go get the leaf yourself, buddy. Yep. In those days, you <laughs> could not do that. Um, and we experienced, I'm sure you did as well, water PT. No, that's something we didn't do. We did pole PT and we did uh, a variety of other PTs. We did, uh, we did the two comma four. We did, we did, uh, enormous distances with a rifle held above your head. And once we started gunnery training, we did the same distances with a pair of hand spikes held above your head. Yeah, no, we, we did that as well. Water PT in our instances was, uh, they would do, do our, our, our PT instruction but then force us to drink water and then carry on pushing us until invariably the water wants to leave at speed. Ah, um, okay. So that was, that was kind of my bit. But then in terms of, of the similarities in, in military experience, yours then took another turning. So you finished your basics. What happened? Mm-hmm. Well, after basics, we actually had the opportunity of going home to visit uh, Hearth and Home for the first time in six weeks, which was enormously welcome. I do write about it briefly in the book as well. But that that that's interlude in the assault on your senses and your psyche lasts for a very brief period, which is literally a weekend. And then once we got back from that, we headed into gunnery training, as I recall correctly, um, which is now a deviation because if you're in the infantry, what you start with in basics, you continue with through the rest of your training, whereas we had to now come to terms with the, in this case, the field gun, the 25-pounder field gun, which was um, the weapon of choice of the battery that I was in, um, which is a whole different uh, set of circumstances, a whole different ballgame in terms of training and getting to grips with what you have to get to grips with. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, you also, you, you, you relate to a story about... Um the whole, this is my rifle, this is my gun thing, which mm. again, you know, it kind of brings a, a bit of a wry smile to my face because um, there was there was a lot of punishment involved around your rifle and how you would treat your rifle and mm-hmm. uh, by, by association, any form of, of equipment and, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, you've, you've completed your training. You kind of... They, they've kind of broken us all down at this stage. And, and now we're trying to, they, they're rebuilding us as this cohesive unit. In your mm. instance, um, it was uh, the battery that you were with. Um, so the writing then, I, I guess, was on the wall for you because if you were, if you, were um, you know, in, in one of the gunnery batteries, for example, then you, you kind of knew you were going to the border. Well, yes, but you were going in an infantry role because we actually also did coin training or counterinsurgency training after we completed our gunnery training in preparation for going to the border. And at that stage, irrespective of where you were deployed, um, if you were a fighting unit, you would end up going to the borders. So the one difference there, of course, was armour because the armoured units, uh, one SSB and two SSB, did play a role on the border. 
in the Nordic cars, uh, but typically if you're in the artillery, you would end up going through the border in an infantry role. And that's the role that we initially went up to what was then called two sub area in, was in an infantry role. Okay. Now, by this stage, um, would you say that things were changing in your psyche? It, it, had, this, had this been where the change had started or was that still to come? No, that was still to come. You know, at the end of the day, once once the, the typical approach to um, military training, which is to try to, as far as possible, turn people into automatons that react rather than think, because we were so often told, you're not here to think, you're here to do as you're told, and you're here to react when the time is right. And there is there is a measure of logic in that approach to military training because the intention is that if you're in the operational area and something goes badly wrong and there is an attack or you're ambushed or whatever the case may be or you get into a firefight the expectation is that you will simply react and keep yourself and your comrades alive because if you're going to sit and deliberate about what you ought to do next when there are bullets flying in all sorts of directions that's ideally not the situation that one wants to be in it's the methodology, of course, which is an entirely separate issue in my view. So, um, it, you know, by that stage of the game, you've accustomed yourself to military discipline as, as much as it rankles and as much as you dislike it, but you've accustomed yourself to it. And at that stage, I figured, well, you know what, this is this is my reality for until the end of this year. So I'm just going to knuckle down and I'm going to get through it as best as I can. Wonderful stuff. We're going to dive a little bit more deeply into that uh, when we come back. My special guest, uh, Norman McFarlane, uh, author of Across the Border, Surviving the Secret War in Angola. Says what's involved back in a bit. You're listening to What's Involved with David Watts. Have you been to our website? Check it out, www.whatsinvolved.com. And while you're there, click on the coffee mug icon and buy David a cup of coffee. He'll love it. And we're back. What's involved? It is chatting with uh, Norman McFarlane, author of Across the Border, Surviving the Secret War in Angola. So let's let's fast forward a little bit, Norman. Now, how on earth did you you end up then getting involved actively in this war? Well, we were deployed to two sub-areas, I said. And in, in fact, the entire regiment was deployed to two sub-area, and it was the regiment... Um, of record at the time, uh, we occupied multiple bases uh, in two sub area, all of the um, previously set up bases, which came into being uh, in 19, from 1974 onwards, when the military then took over from the South African Police Force um, as the uh, security force of record on the border and to protect the border, so to speak. And um, I was based, I was at various bases during the course of the time that I was up there. And towards the uh, towards the end of October, early November, we were told that we were going to be redeployed and that we were going to be deployed in an artillery role. That was what we were told at that time. The rest was disclosed to us when we arrived at Fontaine sometime later. But we, we had been through a very difficult period where, um, and I do talk about it in the book, where... We had uh, two platoon strength uh, groups from um, our regiment that went into southern Angola. And uh, the first instance when the group went up, they didn't encounter any resistance or any issues of any nature. But the second deployment uh, resulted in multiple casualties and um, and, and dreadful wounding of, of some of my comrades. And that kind of 
started the process of my undoing, if I can express it that way. And I talk about that in the book as well. And that was the first inclination I had of just what it meant, although secondhand, because I wasn't involved in that deployment, what the implications of actually being at war might be, what war fighting is all about and what it can result in. Yeah, you see, that's that's the thing. I mean, you know, it's it's all very much romanticized and and you know, you're doing it for the country and you 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 probably had it at the, the same as I did though. It was all about um the communists and we've got to protect our country from the communists and from the swart gefaar and um we continually were indoctrinated as to why we were doing this and um, we got regaled with stories of what would happen if these nameless, faceless people took over and what they would do mm. to our wives, our families, our girlfriends. Um, and and that, was, that was difficult for me because my route then uh, took me into counterinsurgency as well. But uh, we stayed within the borders and we did uh, the township counterinsurgency, mm. Mm. which when, when, when I spoke to people about it uh, afterwards or at the time, it's two totally different things: the bush war and the and the counterinsurgency uh, in the townships. Two totally different mm. things, mm-hmm. indeed. You know, my my ideological proclivities at the time, notwithstanding, as a result of the time I spent with Donald, my uncle Donald, um, the, the 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 propaganda machine that was deployed at the time in South Africa was enormously effective on impressionable young minds, and I guess. Many respects, I was just as impressionable as anybody else that went into the military with me. So, despite the way I felt about what we confronted as a society, it was very difficult to resist the suggestion that we had to defend our country and we had to defend ourselves from, as you so rightly put it, Iswar and Iroi And I've thought a great deal about that since. Um, and you know, hindsight, of course, gives one twenty twenty vision. So, and I'm still not at peace with with my, my service. I'm still not at peace with the fact that I went, um, and I don't think I ever will be. Um, okay, let me rephrase that. I have come to terms with the fact that I went, and I live with the dissonance of the way I felt at that time and the way I still feel today about our country and what happened to it. But I'm at peace with the fact that I will never be able to reconcile that dissonance. It's just something I've come to accept. And I'm grateful that I am actually at peace with it. And that the conflict that I've struggled with for so many years, I can actually set aside at this time. And that that in itself, and I think that is the thrust and the gist of the book that I would like to get across to people is that um, not all of us that that went into the army were um, that way inclined at the time. Um, some of us were even then fairly free thinkers. Um, and the stuff that happened and the stuff that we saw and that we were subjected to um, had a very deep and a very lasting effect on a lot of us. As we continue, though, your, your journey, Norman, because 
um, you, you got to the stage and, and, and I, I can totally relate. And this is something that nobody will understand unless you've experienced it is seeing friends and comrades getting injured and maimed and killed in some instances. Yeah. Um, that is, that is just horrific. And, and, and also, uh, you know, seeing, um, the results of your actions on, on the opposing yep. forces, uh, th- yep. that's, that's not easy, not easy at all. So take us on a little bit because you did a year, um, and in your, in, in those days, camps were, were, were something that, uh, you know, as in my time were compulsory as well. So to Indeed. take me through to that period. Okay. So we went through what we went through with Up Savannah and the decision to go was motivated by an inclination to want to get involved. We, we, we had the choice of not going to Angola and I still wonder why I chose to go. I think part of it must have been that I didn't want to be singled out as being a coward, which must have had some kind of motivation in, in my decision to go. But the propaganda machine that had been launched was significant. I talk about the war being an illegal war, and I'm steadfast in my determination that it was an illegal war. South Africa had no right to be there, and I've been taken on about that, quite frankly, in a fairly recent book launch event. Um, somebody who was an officer, probably eight or nine years subsequent to my service, took me on in a public forum and told me that he disagreed with me. It wasn't an illegal war. We had every right to be there. And I said, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. He did come up to me later and apologize. And the point he made was an interesting one. He said, what I meant was we had no choice. We had to go. And I said, in that context, I'll agree with you. But it was an illegal war at the end of the day. Mm. And there's been surprising a little pushback uh, on my assertion. And it, it's not something that I conjured up. It is, in fact, the truth. It was an illegal war. We had no right to be there. But what was heartening was the degree of support that I've had from comrades who were up there with me at the time who fully agree that it was an illegal war. And that's been a very heartening circumstance uh, in the recent past. So we got back. We were demobilized. Uh, and it, it was the most... It was an interesting experience getting back to the unit because we traveled by train from from Kruitwantan for about three or four days. We arrived back at six o'clock in the morning, as I recall. There were Bedfords standing at the station waiting for us. We were crammed onto Bedfords, driven back to the lines, offloaded on the um, on, 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 on the main regimental parade ground. We were addressed by our OC, and we were told that uh, they would get us cleared out and on our way home before the end of the day. And we were told we were not to engage with any of the new recruits who had literally a month before that reported for duty at the regiment and that we were to stay away from them. We weren't to disclose where we had been, what we had seen, what we had done, because we had, in fact, signed an Official Secrets Act document before we left Gretfontein to fly into, to fly into Angola. And it just came to an end very abruptly. We were back and we were gone and we were out of there by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, literally. And, and, and um, that could be cast loose, cast adrift, go. You're yes. done, we're done. And don't ever talk to anybody about what you saw, did, or not even to your family. You may not tell them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to take another break now quickly, uh, Norman, back uh, with you in just a bit because I want to dive into this this kind of that, that shock of getting back into civilian life 
Uh, my special guest is Norman McFarlane. We're talking about his book, Across the Border, Surviving the Secret War in Angola. As I said in the beginning, not a war story like I thought it was at all. Uh, more of a hero's journey because there's, we, we'll get into this when we come back. There's a lot to talk about still. This is What's Involved. We'll be right back with more What's Involved. David would love to hear from you. To leave a voice message, visit whatsinvolved.com and click drop me a voice note. And we're back with my special guest, Norman McFarlane. Um, so just before the break, Norman, we, we'd gotten to the stage where you had been demobilized. And a lot of the time still to this day, I have to kind of pause and think about what the English word would be for, for you know, because it was, you were clawed out. It was an eight claw parada. That was kind of the thing. Um, but you know, I did, I did, I did two years service The the last year was almost exclusively in the townships and, uh, same thing happened, you know, where they said to you, there you go. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, you're up and out of here. Uh, make sure you hand all your stuff back. Bye-bye. Mm. And, and I got back, I got back into civilian life and after everything that had gone down, I was ill-equipped to deal with life in general. How did it affect you? It affected me in much the same way. That you know, the the, the, the the joy was getting home and seeing my mom and dad again, and picking up from where we'd left off when we spoke at length about what had and hadn't happened in the intervening period since they'd last heard from me, which was months before that. And I, I settled back into civilian life but it was with difficulty because it eventually dawned on me that I felt, I felt detached in terms of what had happened and how life looked and felt when I returned to civilian life. It was different. I, I picked up the relationships that I'd had in the neighborhood with my friends um, that weren't up there with me. And it was peculiar because the relationships weren't the same anymore. They were different. And in some respects, quite awkward at times. And it, it didn't penetrate at the time that this might be the portent of something significant that had happened to me psychologically or emotionally, it, it, it just it just felt different and it felt I felt distanced if I can if I can express it that way, David. So that's what struck me. Um, mm, you know, it, I was mm, carrying on. Yeah, it's it's I think it's very much like that for many, many, many thousands of the, the young men that had gone in uh, through those times. Um because for me I came back and I was an absolute Animal. I was I was short with people. I was aggressive, and and the, 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 I was always this constant hyper vigilance. And it seemed to me that civilian life, somebody had like turned down the contrast. It was it was grey. It was mm. it was just not, you know. And my body had now become so used to living on the edge all the time, you know. Mm. And, and and then you. You, you, you end up having discussions with people and, and friends of yours that maybe didn't go in or went to varsity or whatever the case may be. And you look at them and you go, we've got nothing in common, nothing mm. anymore, you know, and th it, that's, that's a major, major thing. But then 
you, I guess, pretty much like me, went, okay, well, that's done now. Uh, now it's time to get a job. So what did you do? Well, not terribly much initially because um, I did come back with a little bit of money. More of it arrived later. And I spent probably the next month um, living a completely dissolute life. My, my cousin Ashley, who'd been in the military before me, um, from Transkei, he flew up, took leave and flew up and spent three weeks with me. And we spent our days and nights drinking and carousing and having fun. And it was, I think, probably an opportunity for me to relieve a lot of the stress and anxiety and, and um, unhappiness that I was struggling with at the time. I was on a head trigger most times well. I remember and we, we hung around in some pretty um, dingy dives in Point Road in Durban, which was well known for um, a particular industry that um, exists in Point Road and still to this day, I'm given to understand. And there were many occasions when Ashley had to pull me out of a fight because I drank too much and I was on a hair trigger and I wanted to smack anybody that looked me in the face. So it had already started at that stage. And I was a veritable sissy before I went into the military and I was on a hair trigger when I came out. And that, that, that persisted for, for decades. It persisted for actual decades. And recall much later when we were living in Johannesburg, um, working for a consulting firm and my boss turned to me one day and it was in relation to competition popping up for the work that we were doing and i said well we can't coexist with them we've got to take them out because we, we can't have competition of this nature and he said to me Norman, i don't understand you everything that perks had set up in front of you you want to you, you want to knock down or kill and i still remember that conversation i had with my boss and it didn't strike me as odd at the time but that's the way I saw life. And you made the observation that you lived on the edge. And I, I vacillated for decades between fight and flight. I either wanted to take people out or scream at them, or I wanted to run and hide in a dark hole. And I will tell you that I spent a lot of time hiding in a dark hole during those those decades when I was struggling as, as badly as I did. I don't, I don't think, you know, that you, you have in those instances, I don't think that you have much choice because at some stage it starts to register, at least for me in my mind, that this is not normal behavior. And that, you know, that this dark hole place is, is comfortable and at least you're not going to do anything dumb if, you, if you're kind of out of the way and minding your own business. Because again, yeah, I, I was exactly the same. And, you know, this hair trigger thing and I, I was – I suppose unfortunate enough to have a father that thought that walking into my bedroom at five o'clock in the morning or top was four and shouting, stand up, was, was you know, was funny. Um, and, and for me, it wasn't. You know, I, I then immediately went into that, that fight mode because every time yep. I got a fright, I was ready to take on whatever and however. Yep. Um, you still did camps uh, in, in, in your time and, and, Going yeah. back to, to the camps also had a huge effect on you. They did, in particular, um, the time that I spent up in what became was by that stage sector 20, um, headquartered in Rundu, um, at a, um, a place called Mpungufle for reasons that I never was able to work out because there was no plain evidence. And that was the um, regimental HQ from the town field artillery that were up there in an infantry role. And we, we had an incident there that, that also troubled me deeply. And that was uh, an accidental shooting 
which nearly resulted in a death. Um, but I, I was always conflicted about the camps because it was great to get back together with friends and comrades from that time. And the thing that struck me was that we never spoke about the bad times. We never spoke about what happened in southern Angola. We never spoke about what happened in Angola during Operation Savannah. It was only ever about the funny stuff, the 21 one chickens that we stole when we were leaving HQ one day in Angola because we were outraged about the fact that the officer corps and the NCOs were sitting having their bacon and egg breakfast and we were struggling to find rations to eat and keep ourselves alive. It was that sort of thing that we spoke of. And in fact, I talk about, I spoke about that at Gunners Lunch in Durban, which I went to um, weekend before last. I flew up specifically with the intention of connecting with my friends who I hadn't seen for decades. And I made that observation during the talk I gave. And afterwards, we were standing outside on the veranda having a beer. And um, the group that was with me, there were five or six of us that had been up there at that time in Angola. One of them turned to me and he said, Norm, you know, I've never thought about it, but it's exactly the way it was. We never discussed that stuff when we went on camps. We just didn't want to talk about it. We pretended that it hadn't happened. And I spent a lot of time pretending that it hadn't happened. I'm a storyteller by nature, David, and I was a journalist for 14 years. The first time I put pen to paper about my time in the army and subsequently Operation Savannah was in June 2010. It's the very first time I wrote a word about those experiences. Well, considering that I'm a storyteller, I, I it, it never struck me as odd. I just didn't. Mm. Well, there's there's in my life as well, and and many many thousands of other people. There's there's things I've I've learned that I need to talk about the stuff, but there's still certain things to this day that I have not shared with anybody, and that I I just not I won't I I just can't because mm. it's it it triggers all sorts of stuff. Um, Norman, when we come back, um, I'd like to to wrap up uh, our chat with you. And uh, find out a little bit about uh, when you discovered that uh, the wheels had really come off and uh, talk a bit about your journey. This is what's involved. My special guest is Norman McFarland. We're talking about his book, Across the Border, Surviving the Secret War in Angola. If you are looking for a war story, yeah, it's got it in there. But the main thrust of the book is not at all about that. We'll, we'll find out more when we come back. This is what's involved. This is What's Involved. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. More next. And we're back. What's Involved it is. My guest is Norman McFarlane. We're talking about the book uh, that he's recently authored called Across the Border, Surviving the Secret War in Angola. So, Norman, when, when, did, when did the wheels actually really fall off and, mm. and you made this decision to kind of rebuild? And, and, and kind of you noticed that, that there was a problem. Well, the portents were there from a, from a relatively early stage. Um, once we got into the early 90s, when freedom was about to arrive on our doorsteps for the first time in 365 years, I started to see stuff on television where people who at that time had been in the military and who'd suffered speaking about their experiences. And there was one particular incident when our children were very young that just took me over the edge completely. Um, I burst into tears and I cried and my wife was shocked and unclear what was going on. She took the girls off to bed and we chatted about it for a while and she said, look, I think you have 
difficulties and problems, I think you need to get them seen to. But I did the typical male thing, which is to say, I'm not going to see any bloody shrink. I can deal with this myself. It's fine. Leave me be. And that repeated itself over the years, periodically. The same sort of thing happened. My wife didn't know me before I went into the military. So the package she got was me after having come out of the military. So that's the only Norman she ever knew. She didn't know who Norman was prior to 1975. So what she saw in me, perhaps she didn't twig initially, was the main thrust of my behavior was because of what had happened to me. But it really hit ground zero in 2010. And that was a confluence of circumstances, which I talk about in the book. And I realized at that point, and because she said to me, you either go and get this fixed or, and the implication of the or was, I will take the girls and I will leave you. And that prompted me to seek help for the first time. And I sought help and I went into counseling with uh, with a psychologist who still lives in Somerset West and with whom I am still in touch. She's retired. And I was in and out of counseling for four years, but eventually I got back to the point where I could live a relatively normal life. But I'd had to develop an understanding of the triggers and I'd had to develop the skills to be able to deal with what was coming my way. Not always successfully, I have to tell you. And um, that endured for a period of time. I'd become a journalist and I was very happy being a journalist. I was in my third career and I had the most wonderful editor um, who is still a very close friend of mine. And in many ways, she enabled me because when I needed to run and hide, she actually did let me go and run and hide. And um, I have to be grateful to her because it helped keep me on a relatively straight and narrow path. But eventually, when I entered my fourth career, which is that of city councillor in, in the city of Cape Town, um, the assault on my senses of what I had to do as a, as, as a city councillor and combined with the loss of my mom-in-law, who I loved, dearly um, in November. And at that time, we were busy going through the final editing stages of the book. So I was reading the manuscript over and over and over and over again. And that combination of circumstances just undid me completely again. And I ended up back in counseling. I actually had to take a whole month off work. Um, and I was told to take a month, told to go and get myself right before I came back to work. And it was at that time that I finally realized when I went on to medication that I should have done it decades ago. And I also concluded that I'd suffered with chronic depression for 45 years. Yep. So it, it, took, it took far too long, David, for me to seek help. I, I, I've always considered myself not the average white South African male, but it came as something of a shock to discover that I was no to any other white South African male. I had the same sense of indestructibility, despite my fragilities of decades, that I can deal with this stuff and I don't need anybody to tell me how to get right. And it took me a terribly long time, far too long in my view. And I look at the damage I caused to my family. I look at the damage I caused to relationships. I look how it impacted on my business life so severely. And my greatest wish for this book is that People who read it are encouraged to go and seek the help that's out there because there are thousands of people, David, thousands of people who struggle with this silent, malignant ailment that can literally destroy your life. 
Absolutely. And I've come to use the term, I've come to use the term take your life back. And that is whenever I speak, and I'm speaking frequently these days at um, military veterans groups and so on and so forth, my message is please take that step, take your life back because you can. And you know what you don't realize? And, and it took me also years and years and years because it was the same thing. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. Um, I can sort this stuff out myself. I'm fine. But years and years and years of, of aggression, of, of violence, of hair trigger, hypervigilance, um, destroying relationships, left, right, and center. Um, and, and, and again, like you, it's like we're like a lost generation or a lost couple of generations. And there's so many of us that need help. Um, that's why, again, read the book. It's going to trigger you. I mean, if you were there, uh, at any stage uh, before uh, our 94 elections, it affects you. And that, I think, to me, I'm the one thing I'm still battling to come to terms with is that sense of betrayal. Is like I went out, I did what I was told, and then you let me go. Yep. And you cast me adrift, mm-hmm. and I had no idea how to cope with any of this. So, you made the observation earlier, David. Sorry, it's cut across you, but you, you said, you know, why did I write the book? Initially, I started writing the book after I'd come out of counseling and I was back on a relatively even keel. My outrage was about the fact that, in particular, the two battle groups I fought with, um, Battle of X-Ray and Battle of Boxer, received no mention in any of the scholarly papers that subsequently appeared about that, uh, that conflict from 66 to 89. And it was with a sense of outrage that I started to write the book, which is not the best place to start writing a book, I understand. But it very quickly struck me that the way the narrative was unfolding was dealing with the aftermath. And that's when I finally realized why I was writing the book. Because I wanted my family and my friends to understand why I am the way I am. And if I've achieved that, then I feel I've achieved something substance as well. Well, Norman, I certainly think you have. And it's it's a book that you know, in places it makes you laugh because there's a couple of things that come up and and you go, oh yeah, yeah. And there's there's some fun things and the jokes about the rations, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, in in our case, swapping our, our rat packs for for illegal booze, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. But it's it is, it's a tough time and there's not enough support. So um I would encourage anybody to go out and, and get the book and read it. It's available in good bookstores, available online as well. Yes, it is. Fantastic. Yes, Fantastic. And Norman, if, if if somebody's listening to this and they, they're kind of going, yeah, all right, you guys have now pushed all my buttons. What is your advice to people that may suddenly have gone, all right, I'm not alone? Well, my best advice, and this comes from a number of engagements I've had at book launches that I've attended uh, for the book over the last two weeks. Um, A number of people have come to me after I've spoken and said, I finally realized that I need to go and seek help, and I'm going to. The person you're going to need to speak to is the person who's qualified to help you, and that's a counseling psychologist. So reach out to your general practitioner and say, look, I understand I have a problem. I need to speak to somebody. Can you refer me. And my one message in that regard is when you engage with a counseling psychologist, be sure that that person is the right fit for you because not 
it's not always a case of that automatically it's going to be right fit the person as a counseling psychologist. You might need to find the right person with whom you are able to communicate honestly and openly, where you feel that there's a sense of community in this engagement. And I was fortunate in both instances. Um, my new counseling psychologist was introduced to a friend, and she has been absolutely wonderful. And she's managed to get me back onto a straight and narrow that, quite frankly, I've never been on before. And I know the medication has helped, and I'm just regretful that I didn't go into it earlier. And, and, and my message to people is this, don't be afraid of the fact that you might need to go onto medication because it literally helps to give you your life back. I, 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 my, my, my mantra at the moment, David, since this most recent incident is I'm walking on sunshine and I'm walking on sunshine for the first time in 45 years. And if more people are out there that read my book and that feel that they need help can get to that point, but they feel that they're walking on sunshine, you know, achieve something, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, I mean, I, 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 our paths, although it, in, in a different decade, we're, we're very, very similar. And now um, I, I'm 100% with you because in the beginning, I, I was like, I don't need to talk to anybody. You don't need a shrink or a counselor. That's for sissies. That's for babies, not real men. And depression was something that other people got and they just needed to toughen up and sort themselves out. Um, and of course, if you were medicated, I would uh, look down at you from my lofty heights and, and poo-poo you. Well, you know what? The medication actually turned my life around as well. Um, and, and I get your walking on sunshine analogy because over the last year or so, that's where I've been as well. Um, suddenly, this life is an amazing thing. Norman, mm. before I let you go, a question I like to always ask my guests is, is what's next for Norman McFarlane? What's next for Norman? Well, Norman is in his fourth career, as I've indicated, and I don't know how many people are privileged to have had four, four careers in their lifetime. Um, the other thing is, of course, I am still writing, and uh, there are three other books in the pipeline as we speak. Uh, Wonderful. Okay, well, I'm, I'm putting my hand up uh, to chat about them as and when, okay? Indeed. David, thank you so much. Wonderful stuff. Thank you very much. There we go. Wraps it up. My special guest is Norman McFarlane, uh, author of Across the Border, Surviving the Secret War in Angola. Surviving being the uh, operative word here. Uh, and all I can say, as we've discussed in this episode, if you're listening and if you were in the military at that time and any of this resonates with you, get the help that you need because it's going to make the world of difference. Wraps it up for this edition of What's Involved. To each and every one of you, Look after yourselves, take care, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to What's Involved. We hope this episode inspires you to find your passion and live your dream. Don't forget to rate, review, and share the podcast. And to see what's happening, what's going on, and what's coming, follow What's Involved on Facebook and Twitter at What's Involved. Thanks again for listening.